In 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul spoke about ministry. He spoke about a side of it that maybe we see different from American culture, a side that's not glamorous. It's not a popularity contest. You know, if you're truly serving God, you will make waves because the world belongs to Satan. All right, we will ruffle some feathers as we see the Apostle Paul did. Today, we're going to see a chapter, chapter 5, and a subject, I guess you could boil it down to church discipline, that sadly most Christians and, and some pastors ignore as if it's not in the Bible, and we'll see the reasons. Understand this, if we pick and choose what we want to obey out of God's word, we're no better than the cults, because that's what they do. There's going to be some portions of scripture that are hard, that are difficult, that sting a little bit. But again, the cults decide what they like out of the Bible and what they, what they don't. We need to follow the nice things in, that are said in the scripture and also the hard things. Right, so this is going to be a challenge today. God's word is not a smorgasbord table. It's to be taken in totality. This chapter is really a litmus test that will divide us into two camps. Those of us who fear God and want to please him and those of us that fear man or are man-pleasers, as the Bible says, more concerned with what others think than what God thinks. A book that um, I've, many of you have read this book, Ed Welch is the uh, author, When Man is Big and God is Small. Again, it's the fear of man because God's not really tangible here, so I have to deal with my friends and people I work with. You know, I gotta, I gotta play the game sometimes. So this is gonna be an interesting portion of scripture. Starting with verse one. First Corinthians five, verse one. The Apostle Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present concerning him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, to some who maybe haven't read the whole Bible, this is a shocker, and it's going to get even more intense as we finish out the chapter. But there's a report given to the Apostle Paul about the church in Corinth, a serious, sinful condition and nothing's being done about it. Verse one, it says that it's so bad that it ex exceeds the wickedness of the pagans in that area, the unbelievers, and they were pretty bad in Corinth. There was a guy in the church, some guy who was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife, okay? And this is one of the biggest complaints from the unsaved, and the media is always quick to point it out whenever they can, Christian hypocrisy. It's sad when the sin in the church rivals the sin in the world. You know, sin, the sin in the world is like soap opera or something, you know, ridiculous that you see on TV or reading a novel. But when the church gets to be like that, that's pretty bad. Now, understand, as we go through this ride, it's like a roller coaster. We're going to be on a ride today. We have to fasten our seatbelts, okay? Fastening our seatbelts is for you to understand one thing before we go through this. This is meant to apply to the unrepentant, the unashamed, the unabashed in their sinful behavior. And at the same time, they want all the accoutrements. They want all the, uh, the, the trappings and the blessings of the church. They want their cake and eat it too. They're double-minded, James says. 
This does not apply to a brother or sister who comes forward, either to a church leader or a Christian friend, and says, you know, I'm struggling with this sin. I need help. Can I call you if I'm tempted to do this? Will you pray with me? Will you check up on me? Right? That's not what this applies to. So we have to understand that. Uh, the Bible does tell us in James 5 that we're to confess trespasses to one another. It's also, the Bible also tells us to bear each other's burdens. And that's the way the church runs in a functional manner. Verse 2. The Apostle Paul says, you guys should be mourning this situation, but instead you're proud of it. It's a total flip-flop of the way it should be. It's where sin in the church is rationalized and glorified and sometimes even romanticized. Oh, look at those two. What a great relationship. Yeah, but what's going on behind there? It's a sinful situation. So 2,000 years later in the age of toleration, nothing, nothing much has changed. A good manipulator will keep pushing their sin and keep beating the drum to make it palatable until people just are worn down and start to accept it. I'm going to use hyperbole, I'm going to use examples from the world, uh, parallels, and then kind of bring it back. All right? This is a little exaggeration here, but when we talk about Israel and the Palestinian cause, I've actually seen an interview with one of the PLO terrorists. And the premise was, well, Israel is oppressive to us, therefore it is okay to put a bomb on the bus and kill innocent women and children. And that sounds ridiculous to us, but the drum keeps getting beat over the years. Boom, boom, boom. And the UN, what do they do? They condemn Israel for everything that happens over there. It's like it's okay to blow up civilians. It's accepted in the world. Sin is sin. We're not to put spin on sin. We're not to twist scripture. It's never okay to parade sin around in the body of Christ and for people to keep pushing it until it becomes acceptable. Verse 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul is hot about this. He's basically saying when you come together, when you assemble in the church, read this in the church. Things were different back then. If there was a, a flagrant, a public, open sin back then, well, the punishment was also read from the pulpit. When you get together, you want that sin to be public? Well, publicly, you're going to be called out. And again, something you don't see today. In a sense, Paul's saying, read my lips, throw this guy out. You're out of here. Now, what about that little word judge that as Christians we've come to fear? Well, don't judge me. Ooh, oh, sorry. You know, I didn't mean to do that. In my thesaurus, it has 50 synonyms or metonyms or similar words for the word judge. It's one of the longest lists for any word. It ranges from damning to hell, which of course we don't have that qualification. Do not judge. You know, in, in scripture it is clear that we don't have the qualification to damn someone to hell or to make a, a decision about someone's heart that they are going to be damned to hell. However, that word judge can go all the way down to an innocuous making a simple decision, okay? So there's also multiple Greek words for judge, and I've gotten into that before. As a matter of fact, later in this book, the Apostle Paul tells us as Christians, we have an obligation to judge certain circumstances. And here, it was as simple as determining right from wrong, which is something that the Corinthians were not doing. In verse 5, I want to read a parallel scripture. He talks about delivering such a one to Satan. He says this again in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, three verses. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. 
this charge or command I commit to you, son Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy. According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And he's also said, fight the good fight of faith. Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered, suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow. Deliver such a one to Satan? What does that mean and why do it? Well, on the, on the surface, it sounds mean-spirited. But we'll see as we go through this that it's really motivated out of love. Learn not to blaspheme. There's certain behaviors in the church that are equivalent to blaspheming God's name. Do you realize, everyone here who has trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, do you realize we represent God? That's a very strong uh, office that we hold. We're ambassadors to Christ, the Bible says. We take God's kingdom, and he's, a, he's got a far-off kingdom, and he sent his ambassadors, us, into the world to tell the world about that kingdom. Remember, remember Moses, Moses, the law, you know, the Orthodox Jews today revere him as very high. Moses, he's second to God, according to them. Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land because he misrepresented God. And we would say, well, it just was a mistake. He struck the rock the first time. The second time God said to him, tell, he said, speak to the rock. And he struck it the second time because he was mad. And God said, you made them think that I was angry because you were representing me, therefore you won't see the promised land. So, you know, people think, oh, Old Testament, it's harsh. New Testament, everything's, we can do whatever we want. No, it's not true. God is still holy, and there's certain things he still expects from his people. We represent God. He says, put him out of the church, no contact, out of the sanctuary, out of the privilege and protection of God's house, fellowship and worship. He's got to go. You want to run with the devil? Have at it, but don't do it here. Don't do it in God's house. Be a prodigal for a time. Now, I'm going to mix the message of hope in with this because there is a message of hope. You know, it's, it's for somebody to, that's really on a self-destructive course to see the error of their ways and to change, repent, and come back to God. I said, be a prodigal. If you look at the parable of the, of the prodigal son, the father in the story, who is a representative of God the Father, was constantly scanning the horizon for his son to come back. Day in and day out, he scanned that horizon because he loved his son. When his son finally repented and realized his wrong, he did come up over the horizon. And the father didn't wait for him to come. The Bible says the father ran at him and fell on him and kissed him. So the good thing about the prodigal, a prodigal, is that the door is always left open for a prodigal, and that's important. But I would also mix it with this. You want to be a prodigal? Be careful. Be careful because you're not guaranteed another breath. Be careful how deeply you go into, this, into Satan's playground. You call yourself a believer, be careful, because God's judgment is sure. Jeremiah 2.19, it's just one verse. It's very interesting, though. The prophet Jeremiah, God sent him again to tell the children of Israel that they were wrong. Israel, you're wrong, and um, you're wicked. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a popular message, and, and Jeremiah was pretty much abused uh, physically and mentally because of that by his own people that he was trying to save. Verse 19, it says to, to Israel, your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. The sin itself and bad behavior have corrective properties 
but they're to be done outside the church. Otherwise, the person will, not only will it spread, and we're going to cover that, but they will think that they're okay. They'll be self-deceived, okay? And also in that scripture, that foundational in this sin was not fearing God, not having a reverence for God. And I think foundationally, those today who call themselves Christians and, and commit, do awful things, right, and still call themselves a Christian, foundational in that is they don't have a fear of God. You know, there's no fear of him. So it's important to understand. But like the prodigal son, many must hit rock bottom, see the ugliness of their sin and desire to get back into fellowship with God and the saints. Pastor Ken Graves did a great message called Prodigal Nation. It was from the, uh, I believe, the West Coast Pastors Conference this year. He said, you must often experience pain as a precursor to coming back, right? He who falls on the, on the Son of Man will be broken. But from that point, the Lord can heal and mend your wounds and, and uh, make your bones stronger than they were before. But that pain, physical, I don't think he was meaning that. There's certainly an emotional pain. There's a spiritual pain. To be a believer and go deep into this mire, right, before you come back, you've got to experience that pain. The destruction of the flesh, the fleshly nature needs to be destroyed so that the spirit can be saved in the day of judgment. That's important. That's important. A brother that I know who knew I was going to teach this today told me personally I was saved from destruction through 1 Corinthians 5. Joe, preach it with tough love, right? If you don't remove the person, you don't care about them. Right? You don't care if their spirit is saved on the day of judgment. You give them the false sense of security and you help them to become self-deceived. The sooner they learn the lesson, they will be better. You know, in the United States, we're hurting the young generation. It started in the 50s and the 60s with Dr. Spock. Don't spank your children. You know, let them do what they want. As they grow up, you're their pal, be their friends. No, be their parent. When I was a teen and a young person, and I was going in the wrong direction, to me, when somebody would get in my face that was older than me and correct me, you know what I felt? I didn't like it at the time, but I knew inside that they loved me, right? Young people crave boundaries. What are we teaching them? You can curse at your teachers. You can spit at them. You can flout authority. You can, you know, don't spank them. Don't punish them. Let them do whatever they want. You know what that means? That means you don't love them according to the scripture. We are hurting a whole society of young people by not showing them right from wrong and not being firm when we need to be firm. I have a question for the teens here and the young people. Do you have friends that love you enough to tell you when you're in sin? Do you? Do you have friends that you love enough to tell them when they're in sin or when they're wrong? Or do you kind of just do this? They look the other way at your sin, you look the other way at their sin. Christian teens, is that what's going on? Then guess what? You're not a friend, and you don't have friends. They may be acquaintances or Facebook friends, but they're not real friends. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a, of, of a friend, but the uh, kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know what, adults? I'm not going to let you off the hook, or me off the hook. The same thing applies do we have friends, real friends, or are they shallow friends? Are they deep, meaningful friends? The Bible, uh, actually I did a study on, the, um, on Jonathan uh, earlier this year at, at a men's breakfast, and the Bible was very clear about the friendship with Jonathan and David. It was a deep friendship, you know? 
Sometimes they were angry at each other. Sometimes they were questioning each other's loyalty. It was, it was heated at times, but it was a deep friendship according to the scripture. It wasn't a shallow friendship. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul makes an analogy to the Passover celebration. You had the Feast of Unleavened Bread where the Jews would have to throw out the, the yeast and find it, you know, wherever they could find it, scoop it up and get rid of it. And then you had the Passover, and there was symbolism to that. Leaven was, the Jewish people would take um, leavened bread. It had yeast in it, right, uh, this, the dough. And they would always keep a small piece around so that when they had a new clean lump of dough, they could put that one into the clean lump and then they would make the bread out of that one. Then they would take a piece off before they baked it and they would always have this leavened dough. No matter where they put that little piece, right, the whole dough, the whole thing got infected with the leaven. Now I'm going to kind of give it to you in straight terms and you'll see why leaven is symbolic of sin in the scripture. Okay, yeast through putrefaction ferments sugar to make carbon dioxide and alcohol. So what's happening is you have a fungus in your bread that's eating the sugars and it's releasing carbon dioxide to make it rise and also alcohol. So the, the dough actually rises through a rotting process. Doesn't that make it sound appetizing? So after you know, service and you go out to get something to eat and you have a really nice fluffy bagel, it, it was rotting for a while, right? It had some stinky yeast in it. But leaven was symbolic of sin in the Bible, and it was thrown out of the house again prior to the Passover. Leaven here speaks about symbolically this, that sin that spreads through the church. Just as it gets through the whole lump of dough, that sin, okay, that we're talking about spreads through the whole church and, and makes the church problematic. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19. I want to read this also. The Apostle Paul, again speaking to Timothy, says, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Cancer. Certain behaviors and teachings, there were a lot of false teachers back then, are tantamount to cancer to the body of Christ. So we've seen cancer and leaven. And what's the... the uh, uh, common denominator about both of them is they spread and they, they attack the uh, host that they're inside of, that they're infecting. How many small and medium-sized churches have folded because of sin that spread throughout the church? Now, I'll tell you what, there are many of you who have come here and told me sad stories about your former church where there was a church split or where the pastor was driven out. I've heard all the sob stories, all right, and they're pretty, they're pretty sad. 
because of some sin that got into the church and was unchecked and infected the body. Now, the larger churches, they do better, uh, they fare better because they're so big that it's just relegated to stinky pockets of festering sores. But that's not good either, all right? The old leaven was analogous to a former sinful life. Throw it out, he's saying. The church needs to be a new, fresh, unleavened lump of dough. You see the symbolism there. Now, did you notice, I'm just a little sidebar here, is that Paul keeps using names. Alexander, Hymenius, uh, these different people. Well, is Paul gossiping? Because he, he's telling Timothy this laundry list of these folks, and he's done it in other areas. Let me explain the difference between sin, outing sin, and gossip. In the beginning of this book, Chloe's household came to Paul and said, this is what's going on in the church, and you can use my name. No doubt that Chloe's household went through the steps in Matthew 18 probably confronted the person, didn't get anywhere, took witnesses, didn't get anywhere, went to the church, well, they'll listen, this is pretty bad, didn't get anywhere. So what do they do? They appeal to Paul, who's the one who birthed the church. Is that gossip? No. Chloe's saying, you can use my name. And Paul is saying, this is wrong, you can use my name. And it's really motivated out of love. What's gossip is, if you really think somebody's doing something wrong, and instead of loving them enough to go to them, you tell everybody else, but you didn't hear that from me, you know? Let me give you the 411 on Arnie over there. You didn't hear that from me, that's gossip. If you really cared about Arnie, you would go to Arnie and follow the steps. But it's that fear of man again. Well, what if Arnie doesn't take it right? What if there's a problem here, okay? So that's what gossip is, that sneaking around, you're not really concerned about the person, you just like the, the, the pot to be stirred and, and push it around some more. You know what? I have more respect for someone who comes to me and says, listen, I've done these steps. This is wrong. Pastor Joe, you've got to address this, and you can use my name. Don't sneak tidbits to me and, and just move the pot around and be that type of person. But the Bible says, throw out all the old leaven of wickedness and malice and be a new lump with sincerity and truth. Because if we don't have the latter, we're only relegated to a social club. And we're not a social club. Every church should be a place to worship God. If you want a social club, join the Knights of Columbus or the Gardeners Club or, you know, whatever you want to join. But a church is a place where it's supposed to be worshiping God. It's not a social club. We have to get rid of the old leaven. Verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, extortioners, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator or covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I have to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? Which demands an affirmative for a response. But those who are on the outside, God judges, therefore, Put away from yourselves that wicked person. <clears throat> Let me give you a... How many people love horses? I kind of love horses. They're pretty cool. So you can correct me if I mess this up. A great, great illustration. <clears throat> I didn't come up with it, but I like it, so I'm going to use it. I don't remember who did, so I can't give him credit. But horses are herd animals, right? They travel in herds in the wild. And if you observe, many people spend thousands of hours observing horses. 
And they kind of come together, and they're all, they're all, they're all kind of close, although some are on the fringe, etc. If there's a young horse, a male horse, female horse, growing up, and they're just, you know, maybe a little bit too troublesome, and what they'll do is they'll nip at the other horses or, or bump into them or, you know, kick them, whatever they do. The other horses get the idea that this is a problem in the herd. So what the other horses do is they separate, right? And they form a circle away from that one difficult horse. And every time that horse, because they're social creatures like human, every time they try to come in, they guard that horse from coming into the circle. And they nip at him and keep him out. Well, after a while, this unruly horse figures out, gee, I've done something wrong. And you can watch this. What the horse will do is he'll lower his head and he'll slowly come back to the herd, very repentant, and what the horses do, they realize that he's learned his lessons. They open up the, the circle and they let him back in. Right? How could dumb herd animals, excuse me if you love horses, I don't mean to offend you, I'm sure they're smart. How can beasts of burden be so smart when it comes to repentance and do the right things, but humans can't? Does that make any sense? It's like God's kind of, it's kind of funny how God takes simple things in nature and he shows us how brilliant he is, right, through those examples. So these horses, when they start causing problems, they're dealt with in a loving manner from the other horses because the goal is restoration of that horse. So what is the goal? I just said it. Restoration. In 2 Corinthians, we're going to see that this particular man, it appears, was restored, but never without repentance. What is repentance? It's a true change of heart. It's not just, I'm sorry because I got busted. A few things. Three. Number one, John the Baptist said, bear fruits of repentance. We need to see it in your actions. Don't just say it. Number two, Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter two said, repent and believe for salvation. Don't just say, well, I like my sinful, disgusting, filthy life the way it is, and I want Jesus in addition to everything. He's not going to inhabit that. Repent and believe and let him work with you. The third example is Judges 10, which I did, really gives like a three-step picture of what repentance looks like. And even Jesus said, if your brother sins against you 70 times, seven times, if he repents, okay, then you forgive your brother. Because what people will, listen, the, the, the legal system has been manipulated since the time of man. It happened in the Old Testament. We saw it. It happens in our American jurisprudence system. Man likes to manipulate the system. It has to look like true repentance. Otherwise, it still becomes dysfunctional. Repentance isn't hightailing it to another church, waiting a few months until everything cools down, and then act like nothing happened. <laughs> you like that, Tommy? Good, because I'm going to use you in this next, next example. This isn't a true story, but let's just do hypothetically. Tommy, right, goes to the church, everybody here, quietly and secretively, you didn't hear this from me, and says awful things about Brother Arnie, right? It's, sorry, you sit in the front. The whole church now looks at Arnie funny. This has happened, by the way, not with those two. It's really sick, if you think about it. Arnie doesn't know why people are looking at me like this. Well, we find out that Tommy's been running around telling tales. So Tommy's busted and goes, I'm sorry. Is that true repentance? No. What's missing? The fruits. Okay, Tommy, now go to all the people and humble yourself and tell them that you were wrong and that what you said about Arnie was untrue. That's what repentance looks like. We don't see it in the Church of America today. It's just not seen. 
because we're, especially in this area, we're prideful. We're New Jerseyans. You can't talk to me like that. I'm not going to do it. What are you, crazy? No way. I'm just leaving. Make it right. Now, the caveat to restoration, and I always have to have a caveat because I want to hit it from all angles. If you've committed a serious crime, God will forgive you, but you still need, may need to face the authorities. Praise the Lord. Jesus loves me. The church has forgiven me. Um, don't look at the body in the trunk. No, it doesn't work like that. Some things you need to face the authorities for. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Yet I certainly did not mean, this is very important here, because then we'd have no fellowship with anybody, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, and why would we hold them to a standard that sometimes we can't keep in the church, right? I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, the unsaved, the covetous, the extortioners, the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, the Christian community gets really good at pointing fingers at the ungodly and, and ignoring the sins within itself. You see the televangelists, you know, they're, they're, they're railing against a certain ungodly group out there. Hey, that's great because it makes us look good, doesn't it? God hates those people. We're the church. We're great. Oh, he's going to get them. Judgment is coming. It's not what he's looking for, right? The church needs to look at sins within itself. And the Apostle Paul says to the Christian community, you have it backwards. Oftentimes we condemn the world and look the other way at believers and give them a pass. According to the scripture, it should be reverse, right? I like this. Because I've had two standards for wicked behavior. I do. I hold my Christian brothers and sisters at a higher standard. If somebody sticks it to me out in the world, I expect it. Expect to get it stuck to you from the unsaved. They don't know God. I'll give you an example. This, this is a true story. You might find it humorous. I'm on patrol one day. I'm in my black and white with a light bar up top and a blue uniform and a badge. <laughs> Minding my own business. They dis dispatched me to a possible drunk driver, female. So I go there and, well, she's definitely stopped because she hit a pole. Wrecked her car, right? So I get out of the car, South Brunswick police, ma'am, are you hurt? She just kind of looks at me. South Brunswick police, ma'am, are you hurt? And I need to see your license, registration, insurance. And she hits me. It's good, isn't it? Now my first thought, <laughs> and these thoughts come into your mind really quickly. My first thought is, oh no, she really just didn't do that to me. <laughs> my second thought was, quickly followed that one was, Pretend it didn't happen if she did do it, because it's going to be a long night with paperwork. So I was pretty, pretty, you know what, it was an accident. I kind of put that out of my mind. And then she hits me again. <laughs> so my partner comes up, my sergeant, and boy, this girl had some kick on her, I got to tell you. She actually could put her foot this high. It was amazing. So she's fighting with us. She's kicking, punching, spitting, and it was a hoot. Um, seeing it on the, the police uh, camera, it was just was, we had a good laugh afterwards. But she, um, I even pulled my muscle because she used her body weight against me and I was trying to lift her up. The bottom line is she just was out of her mind, you know, comes to court. Now I could say, hey, pff, the pen is mightier than the sword. You're going to get yours, lady. She's not saved. I came to court. I forgot about it all. I didn't hold it against her. Uh, apparently she came clean, said she had a substance abuse problem, and I showed her mercy. Now, it doesn't mean that she got off scot-free, but she knew, and her lawyer knew, that she was shown a lot of mercy. The bottom line is, I want to be a light to the unsaved. 
I expect people to shoot at me, to try to stab me, to try to hurt me, to try to bankrupt me. I expect that from the unsaved, but I don't expect it from somebody who calls themselves a Christian. And I will hold them to a higher standard. I have two standards, and Paul backs me up here. I love it. I really like this guy. I think he's great. Jesus mingled with the worst sinners to try to save them, but often chastised the religious for being hypocrites. In the Bible, can you show me an example where Jesus pounded an unbeliever who's just a tax collector or a prostitute or just some troublemaker, thief? You, can you show me in the Gospels where Jesus really pounded them? He didn't. But he pounded the religious establishment because they should have known better. The scribes knew that word inside and out. There's not one thing that Jesus could have pointed to that they didn't know existed in there and they could finish his sentence. And he said to them, you're the ones with the problems. The prostitutes, the, the drunkards, the thieves. Yeah, I'll come to your house and you can come to mine. Let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. That's very, very, very important. We need to stop pointing our fingers at unbelievers and the church needs to get its act together. 1 Peter 4.17 says the time for judgment to begin with the house of God, and that was 2,000 years ago, and it's still time for judgment to begin at the house of God. Verse 11, here's a group of things, uh, sins that, that are committed that if, and I don't think it's an exhaustive list, but if you're a believer, you call yourself a Christian, and you're actively committing these, and you're not asking for help, and you're unashamed, and you're headstrong and stiff-necked about it, this is where the problem lies. Number one, a fornicator. The Greek word is pornos, of course, in the English, where we get pornography and things to that nature. This is a gambit of sexual sins. Now, this is dangerous because it's pervasive through society, and it's been per pervasive through the church, and it's been pervasive through the children of Israel. This is a constant sexual sins going on for thousands of years, and if the Lord doesn't come back soon, it's still going to continue. The problem with it in the church is it spreads. People accept it. We become tolerant of it. Two, covetous or envy or jealousy. I looked in my Greek um, Bible and I also looked at the English word so I can just cover this as, as well as I can. Covetous, envy, and jealousy leads to strife and strife leads to division. Now, jealousy, let me just throw something else in there, often leads to gossip. A lot of gossip has its roots in jealousy. If you talk about somebody and you really don't like them and you can't put your finger on them and you're making stuff about, uh, up about them, check your heart because you may be jealous of them. Maybe they're more popular than you. Maybe they're more handsome or prettier than you. And you just don't like them. Man, that's an issue with your own heart. So this often leads to strife, which leads to division, which leads to factions. What others have, I want. What they have, I should have. Why has God blessed them and not me? Look at that. Three, idolatry. With the children of Israel, they left God behind and they worshiped idols, which is, you know, we look at that, that's kind of weird. They have little statues that they, they worship. We're, we're modernized, we wouldn't do that. Well, that became so pervasive that it infected the whole nation, the children of Israel, and God had to judge them with more ungodly nations to conquer them. Right? Where does that leave America? In Christianity, Basically, it's the practice of putting anything above God. God is always in second place, which God will not inhabit, by the way. We can put our kids ahead of God, you know? I love my son. He's nine years old. And you know what? I've lost some months, and I've lost some time because, because I was doing God's work. And now he's old enough where he can come with me. 
And you know what? I make it up to my family, but there's sometimes that God's work has to come first. Okay? I think I, do, I have a good balance. You see me with my kid. Um, he's always at events, and there's just times that I just spend the day with him, and I don't pick up the phone. But there are times, and there are emergencies, where the work of God has to come before my family. Don't put anything in front of God. Not sports, not status, not money, not recreation, not your kids. Nothing. Okay? And in the church, this carnal type of behavior of idolatry will become infectious and it will spread. People look at that and say, well, the leaders are doing it. Well, everybody else is doing it. I guess it's okay to do it. But what does the word of God say? A reviler. This is a person who has an abusive tongue. They're a gossip. They're divisive. They have nothing better to do than to create divisions and cliques within the church. The problem with this is, even though there's repentance and forgiveness and that's good, but human beings are funny because sometimes we don't forget stuff. We should because God does when he forgives us. But this type of behavior causes pain. It causes hard feelings. And it destroys the cohesiveness within the church. It's just a splintered group of people that just come on Sunday to make themselves feel better. But there's really no cohesiveness. So this stuff is really bad. A drunkard. Remember, these sins are pervasive. They're ongoing. They're unrepentant. And the person is not seeking help. And I got to tell you, this is a plug for the men's and the women's devotionals. Why do we have it? Sometimes in the men's groups, it's me and Dave and Anthony and crickets. Where is everybody? But then a guy will come up and say, I'm really struggling with this man. Dude, we only have the men's group once a month. We have a Wednesday night Bible study. We have outlets for people to come and to get into fellowship and accountability. All right? So the men's groups and the women's groups are important, and we'll keep having them. An extortioner. This is a person that uses the church people for monetary gain. Maybe they come in with a business, and that's fine. People have businesses. But it's the sole purpose of getting into a church, and usually it's the bigger churches, because there's more suckers. I mean, people to be able to peddle their wares to. You know what I'm saying? So this is a person that looks to the church people as dollar signs, like in the cartoons. Now, also, misuse by church authority. Let me not leave that out. There are leaders in the church that are extortioners. Um, quite frankly, and I'm not saying that a church that does this is wrong, but I believe that weddings, baptisms, funerals, anything that we do as ecclesiastical staff, we don't charge. We don't charge for God's work. We don't make you give us money for anything unless it's an event that costs something that, you know, but we don't believe in that. Or the pastor who gets so worshipped that everyone does things for free. It's understood. If you're an electrician and you go to the pastor's house, <laughs> Don't ask them for a bill, because the pastor don't pay. You know, or is somebody going to the pastor to get something done? You know, don't offend the pastor and ask him for money. Just do it for free. If I've got to continue working another job until this church is either big enough or um, stable enough or whatever enough to be able to support me financially, then that's what I'll do. I don't need your money. Don't even eat with, the Apostle Paul says, don't even eat with such a person. Don't associate and this is, this is the verse that's most ignored in this chapter. Don't associate, it means, in case we're unfamiliar with what this means. Don't keep company with the person. Don't phone them. Don't email them. Don't send them postcards. Don't do Morse code. Don't send them smoke signals. And don't Facebook them. <laughs> There's no exceptions to this. Don't associate with these people, the Apostle Paul says. Do you see the problem? If the, if the herd of horses... And the one horse is just still being unruly. And one horse breaks off and goes, well, I'm going to go talk to the horse and see how he's doing. And, and the horse says, well, it's just them that don't agree with me. 
but there are some that do agree with me. That's dangerous. It defeats the whole purpose of what the Bible is trying to say here. So why do Christians ignore this chapter? And then I'm going to get to why pastors ignore this chapter. Well, I do business with them. Financial reasons. You know, I can't cut, cut them off because there's a, a money issue here. Ignorance of God's word. Another reason is the savior complex. Well, everyone else has tried and failed. I'm going to be the one that's going to save that person. Boy, have I seen that backfire on people. That savior complex, there's only one Jesus. And when you act that way, it's rooted in pride. Uh, what else? It didn't directly happen to me. I'm keeping my options open. Selfish reasons. Fear. Fear of man. Especially the alpha male or the alpha female. Well, if I don't talk to them, then they're going to talk about me, and I know how dangerous their tongue can be. I'm just, listen, I'm just itching, scratching you where you itch. These are things that need to be discussed. It's not polite. Societal brainwashing. The worst churches are a reflection of society, by the way. Why do pastors ignore this? A lot of the same reasons. Well, I can't not talk to them. I do business with them. You know, I go to them for my whatever. It didn't directly happen to me. It's not polite. Fear of man. Also, like I said, the person who's usually in this situation is an alpha male or an alpha female. They have a very strong personality and they have leadership qualities. Doesn't make them good. It's a bad leadership quality. They want for themselves. They want their own following. So the pastor's mind, he figures, may pull from my church, may cause a church split, may take other people with him or her. The numbers go down, the number and the, the fellowship go down, and if the numbers go down, the tithes go down. And in this economy, that could really hurt me. Fear of man. Other reasons, it's a big headache, not now. God, can you do it for me? And I'm going to read one scripture just so, you know, I'm praying about this, I'm reading the scriptures, I'm going to different areas, and I'm saying, you know, I, I think I'm kind of hitting on something, but let me see if other people kind of think the same things. This is the life application Bible commentary that was probably written before I was born. He speaks about discipline in the church. He said, Paul's firm response to blatant sin in the church meets hardened resistance today. Discipline and accountability are sorely lacking in churches. Often, sinful members, when confronted, simply move to another church without recognizing that the attempted discipline was love and action rather than judgmentalism. These times are as desperate as those Paul faced in Corinth. Ask the Lord to fill the leaders in your church with wisdom and courage so that they can set the pace of faithfulness for all the members. Not only do they go to another church, I've heard this, some that have been honest. Well, I'll just go to the big church because there I don't have to be accountable. I can come every once in a while and nobody will ask where I've been because it's such a big church. I don't have to serve. I don't have to tithe. I don't have to be accountable. Is that the life that we want to lead as Christians? Oh, I got offended somewhere, so we're going to go somewhere else where nobody knows my name. I can use their resources. That's not fair to that pastor, and it's not fair to those servants that are serving in that big church, but that's what happens. The older Bible teachers, you know, when they speak, they speak with even a little bit more of a bite than you just read. Um, the guy I'm learning Greek from, the professor, Bill Mounts, he says, you know, I've read this whole Bible in Greek. He goes, you don't see what's supposed to be done in the church done in the church today. Nobody follows it. Warren Wearsby, a lot of these older teachers. So that's what you have there. Sometimes it's the fear of not being popular. 
Now, that's a desire that most humans have. If we're honest with themselves, we want to be liked. God made us social creatures, sort of like those horses. Um, I could just picture the Apostle Paul at the last year of his life. If he had a Facebook account, he would log on to the account and it says, the Apostle Paul, you have two friends, Timothy and Luke. Well, not very popular. <laughs> now, by this time, some may say, hey, where's the love, where's the grace? First of all, it's God's word and I don't need to defend it. Second of all, I keep reiterating, it's the unrepentant. Second Corinthians will find that the Apostle Paul says that the repentant don't beat him up. Don't rub his nose in it. Don't hold it against him every time you see him. Let him go. He's repented, forgive him, and move on. So we don't beat up the repentant. And don't misapply God's grace or make it mean what it doesn't mean. Grace is unmerited favor. That means when Jesus died on the cross, I was a, a wicked sinner. But he died on the cross and shed his blood so that my sins could be forgiven. All right? If I look at him and I believe in the sacrifice that he made, I'm forgiven and I'm free of those sins. So the unmerited favor is I deserve, I could look back at my life, I deserve hell for what I've done in my life. All right? We all do. But I got unmerited favor by God through believing in his son, Jesus Christ. So to the unsaved, there's grace. To the Christian who backslides and is repentance, repentant, there's grace. I challenge anyone to find me any portion in Scripture, whether it be the children of Israel or Christians today, when they are in unrepentant, unashamed, unabashed sin and will refuse to repent where there's grace. There's no grace for that person until they repent and then they fall into category two. You see where I'm going with this? You have to look at it this way too. If we allow this type of behavior in the church, let's just say our church, over the last six months we've had about four or five people come up to receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior. How, how am I hurting by allowing it and me palling around with them? How am I hurting the new believers that have come here and they don't know anything and they're trying to learn? Now I'm confusing them. What about the person who's been victimized by this type of behavior? What type of example does it set if we just look the other way, do nothing, and say, it's your problem, all right? So every choice or every lack of choice has a consequence. If you say, well, I'm not going to make a decision, by saying you're not going to make a decision, you've made a decision not to make a decision. It's just logic, you understand? So these are important things to look at. Verse, I'm just going to read Titus 3, two, uh, two verses. Titus 3, again, the Apostle Paul's writing to Titus. He says, Reject the device of man after the first and second admonition or warning. Know that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. They only get two warnings. And what he's basically telling us is they did it to themselves. They're warped, they're sinning, and they're self-condemned. If they're condemned, it wasn't because we did it, it's because by their behavior and their choices, they've condemned themselves. It's very important to understand. Titus 1, 5 through 16, speaks about the functions of a pastor or an elder to keep the church safe from people who are causing trouble. That's one of their functions. We're not to allow antinomianism or libertinism. Those are both heretical. Those are big words for basically, now I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. That's not true. And verse 13, the outside world God judges. And among believers, we're supposed to put away that wicked person. I want to read one more. 
who just kind of ties it all together, all the different scriptures on church discipline. Church discipline. Again, they did a good job, so I want to, I just changed a few scriptures that I think should go in different spots. But number one, go to the brother or sister who sinned. Show the fault to him or her in private. That's Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Two, if, 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 you, if the person does listen, you've gained a brother or a sister, the Bible says. Two, if the person does not listen, go with one or two witnesses. If they repent, you've gained your brother or sister. If they don't, third step, if he or she refuses to listen, take the matter before the church. Again, if they repent, you've gained the brother or the sister. If they don't, Titus 3, 10 and 11 comes. Warning. Here's your admonitions. That's got to stop. Okay? The next step is 1 Corinthians 5. Remove the one in error from the fellowship. Okay? The next step is 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8. The church gives united disapproval, but forgiveness and comfort are in order if he chooses to repent. You see, in every step, repentance makes all this stuff go away. If the person is thrown out of the church, it's because they've purposely not wanted to repent. In every step, there's an option, an escape route called repentance. The father and the prodigal son, again, the door was always open for his son to come back. Always leave the door open. Three, do not associate with the disobedient person. And if you must, speak to him or her as one who needs a warning. Second Thessalonians, which we didn't read, three, 14 through 15. In the end, discipline is really motivated out of love. Number one, love for those who are watching, for the victims, not to be re-victimized. For the new or weak believers, a sense of security and safety and reinforcement of what's right and what's wrong and what they're hearing from the pulpit is being carried out in the church. Love for the church body as a whole, for the infection not to spread, and love for the sinner to see the error of their ways, coming back to restored fellowship with God and other saints. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as usual, we thank you for your word, Lord. There is so many holy...